Hello and welcome to Talk to Strangers, the podcast where we get to explore the lives of people we don't know. It's all about challenging stereotypes, questioning our assumptions about others and building empathy through listening. In this episode, I speak to a ex-convict. We explore his life as a criminal, his arrest, his time in the justice system in the UK and what life was like after prison. All I'll say is expect the unexpected. There's certainly a few surprises in his incredible story. So let's not hang around and get straight into it. Hello. Good morning. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm, I'm okay. Yeah. All right, lovely. Um, well, first of all, thanks so much for saying yes and um, and coming on the podcast. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm just, I'm so excited to, to chat to you about, um, you know, what it means to be uh, an ex-convict, someone that's been convicted of a criminal and everything that that, that entails. Um, first of all, just, yeah, just like wanted to see like how how are you feeling today how are you like feeling about the interview or the the conversation sorry uh, well uh now it comes to it slightly nervous but uh i'm okay yeah i'm relaxed um yeah meditated this morning so i feel yeah i feel quite uh, grounded um but yeah i'm curious as to what questions you're going to ask me and and, and how i'm going to end up answering them <laughs> so it's a uh, curious but a little bit nervous as well Okay, that's that's good. I think a bit of nervous excitement. I think I I can, yeah, vouch for the same. Um, so I mean, to start us off, like, uh, why why did you say yes to to this conversation? Um, well, first of all, when I read uh, the the message on on the board notice board, I liked. I was inspired by uh, uh, what I read about what you guys are trying to do, and I know that. There's a, there are a lot of uh, stereotypes out there about uh, about convicted criminals and uh, mostly stuff you see on films, uh, Hollywood and you know and TV series and stuff. And I know I don't fit that mold, um, so I thought that I could make uh, an interesting case actually for people to understand that not all convicted criminals are necessarily bad guys knocking around trying to trying to hurt others. Um, and uh, and it's it's you know I, I don't consider myself um, an anomaly because when I was in prison I I actually found out that that was that was the case for a lot of people um, most of the people I met in prison and I'll tell you more about that later uh, came from disadvantaged backgrounds they weren't they weren't these you know well-adjusted criminal masterminds that you see on TV I know there were probably some somewhere in the system uh, but they're really few and far between um, what you tend to meet are people who, are suff- who have suffered from trauma uh, a pretty bad childhoods and and you know uh, are definitely disadvantaged um, so yeah and, and and you don't really get to find that out until you're inside the system you don't really get to know how badly human beings are being treated <laughs> in prison and in the system uh, I'm more on an administrative level than anything. Um, so I thought I could, uh, you know, whoever listens to your podcast might have, might get an interesting insight into the criminal justice system. Yeah. Wow. I'm, yeah, you've, you've really tickled my, my interest now. Like, um, 
I have some experience um, myself of, of the justice system. So my dad was a probation officer for probably over 25 years. Um, and so he was working with people on A-class addictions particularly. Um, mm. and, and so I got a, a sense of, of the court and um, his role within that kind of recovery system. Um, obviously, that was kind of more directly related to, to addiction than it was and recovery than to crime. Um, you know, although our justice system views that as a crime. Um, mm. Before we get into it, um, I feel like for, for my benefit and for, for everyone else's, it'd be good to get a little bit more context on who you are. Um, because, you know, obviously this is anonymous, but it would be still be valuable, I think, to, to, to know a, a bit about maybe um, your, your age, your ethnicity, um, how you mm -hmm. um, identify, um, maybe whether you were brought up in the countryside or the city, uh, what class you might identify with, um, that, that kind of yeah. thing, just to get a little bit of background. I consider myself a hodgepodge, really, uh, culturally uh, speaking. Um, I am 40, go on, let me check, 46 years old. Um, and I, uh, I was born in France, uh, where I spent the first 10 years of my life. Um, my mother is British. My father is French. So um, I got a French passport, so I'm considered French. But I, I, I'm bilingual, so I, so I moved here when I was 10 years old. But then my family moved back to France when I was 15, where I lived until the age of 22, and I've lived in the UK since that time. I would say in terms of class, uh, it's an interesting one. My father, I'd say he's middle class, yeah, definitely. In France, he'd be middle class. He taught uh, history, geography and French literature. And my mum is definitely working class. Uh, she is from the southeast of England. Yeah, very working class. More like sort of EastEnders kind of work, geezer kind of working class uh, side of things. Um, well, I've been to university. I studied politics and international relations at university. And I studied French literature and philosophy while I was still in France. I would class myself as, I suppose, uh, lower middle class, I think, you know, if you want to talk about class. Um, but I've definitely got some working class roots. Um, and I try and kind of stay out of the whole class thing. Uh, so in the on the ethnicity list, I guess uh, I would tick the box white other because I'm not actually British. My nationality, I would say I'm dual heritage because, you know, I have as much... I now speak better English than I speak yeah. French. Okay, yeah, that's. A, I think that's a really good overview. I think people can... It's really for, for me and for others to, to draw a picture in their mm -hmm. mind, you know. So, I, first of all, I, I'm, I'm curious, like, when you hear the sort of title or label ex-convict or convicted criminal, what does that evoke in you? What's the, what's the feeling there for you? Well, I would say there's... Today uh, is very different than it would have been 10 years ago. Before I went to prison myself, before I, I, I experienced the, the criminal justice system firsthand, my impression was, you know, I'd imagined some, you know, guy with a low forehead, shaved head, you know, big muscles. Yeah? I'd think of uh, somebody who'd go around hurting people. Today, it's nothing of the sort. That, In fact, some of the people I was closest to in prison were, were lifers who had committed murder. Now I think of people in prison as uh, disadvantaged, 
Um, and, you know, some people do have issues, you know, with uh, or sociopathic traits. So some people do have issues with violence. Um, but I think a, a quite a large proportion of people in prisons, there is an element of addiction. Uh, whether it's, you know, having grown up in around alcoholism and drug addiction in, you know, again, in disadvantage from disadvantaged uh, backgrounds or being actively involved in the buying and selling of drugs. Um, but I see I see people being uh, economically disadvantaged and turning to an economy on their doorstep. Mm. That's what I see. Is that the disadvantage then that that you feel that that economic disadvantage? Uh, yeah, I mean I've heard different statistics about this, but um, one of the statistics was that well over seventy percent of, of uh, males in the prison system are actually have the reading age of eleven or below. So literacy levels are pretty darn low. You meet people who can't read, and I helped people. I helped quite a few people writing with writing letters to the judge or or. or you know, in different bits of administration I could help them with. I was shocked that there were that many people that, in this day and age, that can't read. Mm, now, of course, I mean, if you can't even write your own CV, how do you expect to, to be able oh, to yeah. kind of join, join any sort of job exactly. market? Um, so I, I, I want to ask the question, I bet lots of people are waiting for me to ask, how did you end up in prison? What were you in for? That's what Yeah, yeah, yeah. Me. That's the first thing everyone wants to know when you get in as well. And I've got to say, thankfully, got to hope and pray when you get to prison that you're not in for any kind of sexual crime because that your life becomes uh, pretty much unlivable. Um, so I was pleased that when I got to prison, I was able to share my crime and everyone was like, way, you're one of us. Uh, I was like, okay, good. I uh, was arrested with 15 kilos of MDMA. And, and presumably, you were you dealing or moving Both. those drugs? Both. I had been dealing for a number of years um, and I'd gone to the point where I had such large amounts of drugs. At one point I, I thought I could maybe, I'd gotten myself into a, a certain amount of debt and, and I was really, my motivation was financial. I'm not, I wasn't a career criminal. I had a few uh, run-ins with the law as a teenager um, and then none. Actually for 10 years was a teetotaler, I didn't drink smoke, take any drugs. And in my early 30s, uh, I resorted to uh, to selling drugs because I was doing a lot of partying and I racked up a huge debt with the bank during the financial crisis. Um, I was self-employed at the time. And I was offered an opportunity by somebody who I'd been buying drugs from uh, to to start selling them on, on tick, as they say. Um, and mm. it's started there and eight years later I'm in prison yeah so I wasn't a career criminal that's what I was saying the, the amounts of money I, I saw coming and going was just you know horrendous uh, I look back now and I think about how I'm surviving from month to month now on a on a regular salary and, and I look back and think gosh you know I can't believe how much money um, I was I was turning over at the time um, so I started uh, I started working for you know what's called a, a little firm and I started moving drugs around Europe, but then you know I got caught. Can you tell us about that moment? Like what what happened there? <sighs> well, a lot of was going through my mind. First of all, I had been blackmailed by an ex-girlfriend uh, who was disgruntled. She'd blackmailed me for for drugs and money. Uh, she was jealous of the current girlfriend, who sadly was sitting with me the moment I was arrested, because she ended up with me uh, on that run. Um, 
it, it was it was all wrong this time. Uh, I'd come through the border before, and I had uh, never had my passport checked the way these people had checked it. Uh, we instantly got stopped, and they went to town on my car. The drugs were hidden within the panels of the doors. It took it was really quite a lengthy process to hide these drugs in the panel, but they pretty much knew what they were looking for. And I and I watched them, and you know they were taking the car apart, and there was a moment. They hadn't taken the speakers out yet. And the woman said, no, nothing. And then one guy said, no. <laughs> and he walked around the car tapping every single bit of the car. I went, here. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> so I went from a low to a high and then oh, I kept crashing it back down again. And once they started taking the speakers out, the thought went through my mind, okay, this is it. And my next thought was, uh, my current girlfriend at the time, he was sitting next to me and I thought, oh no, why is she here? Why did I let her get involved in this? And as they walked towards me and they didn't just, it, was just one, it wasn't just one person that came. The entire team of, of UK border force people, you know, border agency came towards me. There was, you know, quite a few people walking towards me. I thought, right, okay. They put the, the handcuffs on. You know, it, what went through my mind was, thank God someone has finally stopped me. Because I was quite sure, not long before this had happened, that either I was going to get caught and go to prison or I was going to kill myself. Not not by committing suicide. You know, I was involved with some quite unsavoury people. Um, the, the higher level guys were, were really quite scary people. Um, and I just, I, I knew it couldn't go on forever. And I needed somebody to stop me because I was completely out of control by this point. I was so addicted to cocaine. Um, I was... Um, so roughly on the two thousand pound a week cocaine habit, and so did your yeah. girlfriend end up getting arrested? Was yeah, yeah, judged? yeah. She was arrested, and we were both on remand, no bail because of a. We, they, they claim we were a flight risk, so she went to a girls' prison. I went to a boys' prison, and uh, we wrote to each other. Wow! And we got, we got given a phone call a month as well, so we get to talk for I think it was ten minutes. Wow. So talk me through what, what happened after your arrest, like what, what happens after you get arrested? Well, first of all, I was taken to the local police station. Um, I was left in a holding cell for, I think I spent two nights I spent in that place. So it was a, just a room with a bench. You know, it was quite a large room, actually, compared to some of the holding cells that I went on to, to sit in. But in this case, it was quite a large room where potentially other people might have been arrested and, and, and I'd have had to share the space with them. I didn't have to do that. So I was left in this room. There were newspapers there for me to read. It wasn't that warm and I was brought the worst food I'd eat, probably eaten in my life. You know, these sort of microwave meals, like all day breakfast that's just come out of a microwave for five minutes. Uh, food with zero nutrition value. Um, yeah, so I stayed one night there and then and then a second night before I was moved to um, HMP Elmley. So this was in the evening when I was arrested. So the next day I was offered to, to take a shower, or maybe it was the day after, but it was on the, one of the mornings. So I was led to a shower room in the police station um, and I was allowed to take a shower. And I remember I was doing so much coke that one of my nostrils was left quite damaged um it just worn away inside basically i was mainly using this mm. left nostril over and over and i was in the shower and i you know how you sometimes blow your nose in the shower to get rid of what's in there i i this this entire mold of my left nostril came just 
came out of my nose um, and oh. fell on on into the water. And I I remember looking at it and, and seeing that it was the exact shape of the inside of my nose, and it was this mixture of cartilage and snot. Uh, it was where it hit detached. It was full of blood, and I was like. Yeah, you've really damaged yourself. Oh, my nose felt completely empty, and it's pretty much been empty ever since. I, I think I just, you know, I just, you, if you take a lot of coke, you're, you you can't feel your nose. Um, so uh, that was a moment, it, and that, that was a little, a mini trauma. I felt it in my whole body. It was like, oh, my God, you've just lost a chunk of your insides. Um, and then on the second day, I was taken to uh, to the prison in... What's uh, what's what, what prisoners call the sweat box, which is the uh, the Serco van or the whichever company happens to be taking you to the prison, where I was then processed and and uh, put in a in a three man cell with two other guys. Right, and and where was that? Uh, HMP Elmley, on the uh, okay. on the Isle of Sheppey. There's a there's a a cluster of prisons on the Isle of Sheppey. Stanford Hill is a is a D category. Swellside is a B category for long term, uh, so for lifers and people with, you know, double digits. Um, and Elmley is uh, both a remand prison and they have long term people in there, but it's mostly for shorter sentences and people on remand. It's the remand prison for Kent. Okay. Can you explain what remand means? That's a word I only read this morning oh. looking at okay. statistics. Okay. Well, when you're on remand, you haven't been sentenced yet. So uh, it's often called ju- a judge's remand, meaning that you've been arrested, you haven't been given bail, so you're kept in custody um, and you're awaiting your trial. So when you're on remand, you haven't been sentenced yet. Got oh, you. Yeah. Okay. And can you explain what bail means in England? I, I, I think it's slightly different well, in the US. I'm not exactly sure similar. how it differs from the US, but you can pay a certain amount of money in order to be released. And you're probably then... Uh, if I'm not mistaken, you're released uh, on home detention curfew, which is known as TAG uh, to prisoners, where you, you wear a, one of those electronic devices on your on your uh, ankle and uh, mm-hmm. you have a certain curfew. And, um, and some people, when you know, when you get inside, uh, some people argue you're better off on remand than on than on TAG, because every day you spend on, on TAG, you only get once you get sentenced. You, and then you go into custody, all those days only count for a half day of your sentence. Whereas if you're on remand, every day you spend on remand, the day you're sentenced, all that gets taken off uh, and calculated mm. in your release date. So there's, you know, okay. some people argue, you're better off on remand. I spent six months on remand before being sentenced. Okay. So interesting. Yeah, I didn't know all these details. And, and so... What was that like waiting for your sentence? What was that Hor- period of time Horrendous. Like? <laughs> I mean, uh, it's torture. You know, part, part of the six months I spent before being sentenced, and part of the issue was that the last thing I said to my girlfriend before they, they were close enough to hear what we were saying, when they, when they walked over from the car to arrest me and you know, read me my rights, um, was I told her to deny everything and I would exonerate her. Um, it was the noble thing to do, it was the right thing to do, um, mm-hmm. I managed to get that in. So don't worry, just deny everything. I'll I'll exonerate you. So part of the of the experience of those six months on remand was the stress of worrying about someone else being in prison on because of me, basically. Now, mm-hmm. my girlfriend wasn't in any way profiting from anything. She was just my girlfriend at the time. She loved me and she wanted to 
support me. Uh, she was, it was all crazy. We're all on drugs. No one's thinking straight. I should never have allowed her to come um, in the first place. But I had, and I felt terrible about that. So I was at least going to redeem myself on that front. So part of the stress of those six months uh, was, you know, making sure that she would be released. And what was happening was that there was some toing and froing. The court system is is slow, and because she had pre, uh, she had therefore pleaded not guilty, and I, from the word go, had pleaded guilty. And but we were what's called co-defendants. Uh, also, she wasn't English. She wasn't British. I got it. Just got to a point where, you know. I took advice from my solicitor and I, I said, look, I'm going to write a letter to the prosecution stating, you know, that she's, you know, done nothing, you know, um, that she, that, and in the end, I, I, the letter I wrote was very clear. It said, I am to blame for this. She did not know about this. I tripped her into it. Um, and that, you know, it was the, 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 the more heinous part of my crime. I made myself look really bad. But then at the end, I said, um, I will testify in court to this. I sent her a copy and I gave a copy to my sister, which she passed on to the to prosecution. And the next day she was released because they realized, okay, there's no point us pursuing this person. Let, let, we're going to let her go. So she was released after four months. Uh, so the first four months was this frantic worry about what's going to happen to her. And so that aside, the, the, the time I spent on mine was horrendous. Because each day I'd be trying to calculate the outcome of, of, my, uh, of my conviction and how long I might be in prison for. Now, in the end, I was able to claim every single mitigating point uh, in my favour, which um, there's a whole matrix of when it comes to importation of, of prohibited substances, depending on the class, for example, if it's A, B or C. But also there's, there's another part of this, the level of your involvement. I, no, I was no mastermind. I was moving drugs for other people. Thankfully, when I was sentenced, um, I was sentenced for different things, but these sentences ran concurrently, not consecutively. And that's a huge difference between America and the UK. In the end, um, I spent four years. I was sentenced for four years, two in custody and two on license. Um, I was also able to appeal my, my sentence at one point. I got it lowered. It was five to begin with, it went down to four. Uh, the difference would be that if you have a sentence for 10 years and one for five and one for three, if they're running consecutive, you do the 10, then the five, then the three, which would be 18. 18 if they run yeah. concurrent, you're doing them all at the same time. So you're only ever doing the maximum amount that your highest uh, conviction is. Yeah. Um, I was I was moving drugs for other people. So, for example, my level of involvement was actually the lowest. I was considered the courier. Also, so what was interesting was that whilst... Initially, they told me I, there were 15 kilos of MDMA. When it came time to sentencing me, there were only four. <laughs> well, huh. that taught me something else about the criminal justice system, is that uh, the majority of that seize was stolen um, whilst, it was, oh, well, wow. whilst it was kept by the police. And that played in my favour, because initially the prosecution accused me of, of shifting a, almost a million pounds worth of drugs, the reality is that that amount of drugs ended up costing about £35,000. It was next to nothing, you know. Um, but when it came time to actually sentencing me, the amount was all the way down to four. So 11 kilos of MDMA went went bye-byes. I was able to make a case uh, for the fact that I didn't know what was in the car, because that's what I'd said. Because right. that's what you say. Uh, I said I was doing it for other people, and I didn't exactly know what was in the car. And so when it, come, when it came time to being sentenced, then... Um, 
that actually played out as correct because I hadn't questioned, I had never, I had never contested the initial amount they said it was. Um, you know, yeah. it, it was, I was shocked. My solicitor told me, I was like, what? But he's like, don't question these things. It's playing in your favour. Wow. I was like, right, okay, fine. Um, that's, that's crazy. Do you think there's a chance that they didn't find part of the stash? No, of course not. Because in, here, yeah. here was what was interesting is when uh, I had to sign a document that said um, that they had uh, caught me with 16 kilos of MDMA. And I was like, right, okay. I wasn't sure what the weight was, to be honest. I thought it was 15. Um, but I was like, okay, fine. And then the next week they said, oh, we just, uh, you know, I got given some more documents to sign, similar ones to the previous ones. And in those documents it stated that there was only 15 kilos. And I thought, well, okay, well, that's different from last week. And then I was asked to sign a third set of documents. And this time, you know, it said 14 kilos. And I, you know, I said to my, I said to my solicitor, do you know, I've signed three different documents that have three different amounts of MDMA on. They, they can't seem to get there. What's going on? He said, it doesn't matter because your your level of sentencing will be the same because the, the sentencing guidelines are the same between one kilo and 20 kilos. So it doesn't matter to you. And I thought, and and, and that was also, you know, a, a, an early insight into the criminal justice system and, and just how, I don't know what to call it. I don't know, administratively incompetent, uh, the people running it are. It's like, how many times do you have to weigh this thing? And then in the end, for my solicitor to say to me, well, there are only four kilos in the end. I was like, excuse me? But, you know, the first day I, I arrived in prison, um, one of the inmates who was sorting my clothes out as he was giving them to me was like, hey, what are you in for? And I said this, this. And he was like, I've got mates in... Uh, he told me, oh, I've got mates in um, in uh, at the port in Dover, we might be able to, for the right amount of money, we might be able to make it all disappear for you. So the next thing I was thinking was, wow, how do I, how do I make this happen? You know, and I went back to this guy and I was trying to figure out how on earth I could make this happen. It would probably cost me a lot of money, which I didn't have um, at the time. And I spoke to him again a week later and he said, nah, sorry, I've talked, spoken to my mate, nothing can be done. Uh, soccer are on to you. Now, soccer is a, an acronym for the Serious Organized Crime Agency. Um, and he said, no, it can't be done. And in the end, obviously, <laughs> uh, it was done. <laughs> but not, not to the extent that, you know, it would have been thrown out of court if all the evidence had gone missing. But somebody just helped themselves to 11 kilos of MDMA. So, yes, what I was doing was illegal. Yes, uh, in selling drugs. Um, but I, I never felt it was unethical. And I tried to be ethical in, in the way that, you know, the way that I did it. I mean, I didn't, you know... I tested all the drugs <laughs> before selling them, um, but it but it got it got to a ridiculous point where I was, you know, employing two people to to, to just be doing deliveries twenty four seven with two vehicles. I even charged for delivery. I mean, it got it got to a point where I was doing spreadsheets <laughs> because I was, you know, I thought, you know, if you're gonna we're gonna work together and you're gonna deliver drugs for me, I am not going to exploit you the way those ten year olds get exploited who are running, you know, cracking heroin all over London. Ten ten year olds that are moving crack. Across. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Can we talk more about that? Oh, well, I mean, I I was not directly involved with any of that, but yeah, kids get kids get used to uh, to to move drugs. Uh, I wouldn't say it's super large amounts, um, but yeah, 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 it happens in parts of London. Very young, very young kids are being uh, used as uh, mules, but just just around London, you know, not going abroad or anything. Yeah, this question of ethicality, I think, is really interesting. 
although you know you could see the drug itself what do you know about the process before it gets well, to you yeah that that i'm not going to i'm not going to claim i really fully you know i, I to cut a long story short, I was ethical in the sense that I was honest um, uh, and I also would advise people when I was when the drugs you know, were being sold to them. Yeah, okay. And I, I, I like the fact that you're frank about, you know, not actually knowing what the, the process of, no. you know, the MDMA was before. And Okay, so to just bring it back, so you, you said a little while back about white privilege. I think that'd mm. be really interesting to speak about a bit more. Like I read a very telling statistic this morning um that BAME men are more likely to be arrested plead not guilty and be sent to prison by the crown court than their white counterparts and that's from uh the prison reform trust in their summer briefings 2019 was that your experience like what, what was your experience of white privilege well first of all um the car i drove at the time was a Renault Megane and I'd found these compartments under the floorboards for toys in the back. It, I just found places to hide the drugs that unless you had a dog, you would not find them. And I wore glasses because I wear glasses to drive. Um, and I'm white and I've got, you know, and I had short hair and I just drove around. I didn't race around and I drove this boring looking off purple family car. And uh, no one ever stopped me. But I saw all the time. All the time, the same people being arrested. It was always a black guy driving a BMW 3 Series or whatever, the, the drug dealer's car. If you drive around with a car with a personalised plate and tinted windows, a BMW, you are absolutely going to be profiled. It, was, it made me uncomfortable, but I was also on a purely selfish level thinking, well, well, all the time you're arresting, you're stopping these people, you're not... You're not even noticing me. If a black, if a BAME black minority ethnic or Asian person's going through, you can bet your bottom dollar they're going to be stopped and I'm not. Did you find that that was reflected in prison? Yeah, yeah. And you know what? The lads, the lads that I met in prison, they, were, they didn't help themselves. Um, it's this thing like the culture is you plead not guilty. And a lot of times people are in on charges of uh, joint enterprise, which means that there might be one of you might be responsible, but if somehow you get linked to that person via what's called joint enterprise, you all get sentenced, pretty much the same thing. And the, the, the cumulative amount of sentencing can be like, you know, tens and tens, dozens of years between, between three or four of you, you know. Um, so joint enterprise and also conspiracy. Um, and there's, I think there's a culture of everyone pleads not guilty and we see who can get away with it. So on occasion you'll get a group of four or five people. They all plead not guilty. Um, one of them actually might be released and get away and, and there were no further charges. Yeah. yeah. How does this relate to, um, you know, institutional racism? Well, I think, you know, I'm talking about the culture, this culture of automatically claiming that, you, um, that you're not guilty that plays against you because when you're in a court of law and the judge is looking down at you, he wants to see remorse. Um, but you, you feel that what there's a, a culture within BAME communities or certain BAME communities that have that attitude to, I, to crime. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say BAME communities. I'd say the criminal community. Criminal um, communities. I'd say, okay. I'd say everyone. <laughs> um, but okay. I, I, I wasn't part of that culture, you know, so, and, and I showed remorse, you know, I'd love to speak more about your experience in prison and, and what that was like. I'm curious to know who who are your friends in prison? What what were the 
prison guards? Like, what, what was your experience like there? First of all, I was shocked that I was in a cell with, there were three of us in a cell that was only designed for two people. You know, you, you hear about overcrowded prisons. I mean, it's not as bad as in America, but there were three of us in a cell, which went against the um, EU legislation. And my understanding is that the prison was fined each year because they were contravening um, EU legislation on this. Um, so there were three of us in there. It was pretty cramped. The, I don't need to go into detail. The food was awful. But, um, and mm. the first couple of days, I, I got served a plate of food that was so bad. I just threw it straight in the bin. I was I'm like, this smells awful. What is that? I'm throwing this. I'm not eating this. But of course, that's all the food they were going to give me. So, you know, mm. I think I went for a couple of days without eating and I was ravenous. And by the, you know, by the end of the second day, I was like, I took the food and I was so hungry, I devoured it. What, what was day to day like then? How much time did you have outside of um, that cell? Well, the, the shocking thing was that when I first arrived, I was not allowed out of the cell because there weren't enough jobs. Having a job that took you out of your cell was a privilege. Um, so I spent the first roughly two and a half months just locked in, in a prison cell with two other guys who insisted on doing the only thing they could do, which was watch daytime television. So I was, I was made to watch, uh, I don't know, Homes Under the Hammer and Cowboy Builders all day long. It was, it, I mean, that was, that was torture in itself, in and of itself. I, it was, the boredom was, was crushing. Um, and, you know, I would wake up every morning very early, you know, before the other two guys were up um, and just... Whatever dream I'd been having, um, a lot of times there were dreams or nightmares, I was, I just wanted to go straight back to, because in my nightmares and dreams, I was, I was free. So I would wake up from the worst nightmare, you know, to an even worse nightmare. The moment I'd wake up, I was in anxiety. It's like, oh my God, I'm in prison, you know, and I could be here for God knows how long. And my girlfriend is also in prison. Um, I was in anxiety almost every day and, and I would have to just breathe through the anxiety so I just breathe as slowly as I could. I had no knowledge of meditation uh, at the time um, but it's something that I you know I, I came to learn later on and, and something I practice every day now. Um, right, I mean, is so, that how so, you coped then? Yeah, yeah oh, absolutely yeah but I, I what happened was I was trying to be very polite and asking for things because you know you you have to ask for stuff like for example you need a pen or you need a you know, you're constantly asking for things that, that you require assistance with. And I, would, I thought, if I'm really polite, they're just going to just realise that I'm not going to cause any trouble, everything's going to be fine. And I did that for the first six months. And the responses I got were these, who do you think you are? You know, was, I'm just being polite. But because I sounded a bit posh, I only got called posh boy pretty quickly. Uh, when you go for your dinner in the evening, you pick up your dinner, um, and then you pass a table where they give you your breakfast for the next day. It's a little bag tied with a knot with some cornflakes in and uh, you get given like, a few tea bags and a sachet of sugar. I mean, I don't like white sugar. Never, you know, I've, I haven't been consuming it for as long as I can remember. And I remember looking and being given sachets of white sugar and, and, and asking, can I get some demerara? <laughs> and, and I was given them look like, fuck off, posh boy. <laughs> I spoke to a nurse who in the first week told me you had better dumb it down here because I couldn't understand why the, why the officers were being so rude to me. Um, and they saw me as manipulative. It turns out many of the sex offenders in prison, they're a different class of criminal. 
But a lot of the sex offenders um, are, are much more articulate uh, than your average prisoner. The prison officers are very, very wary of being groomed in any way and manipulated in any way. So I found that the, the, uh, the, the, the very polite sort of uh, <clears throat> middle class approach actually, it offended them, some of them. Because most of the prison officers are not middle class, let me tell you that, they're all working class. I was exposed to a lot of racism in prison, by the way, I should also say racism from white people to, towards uh, black and towards the Bain population. But then I, was, I shared cells with um, people from, unfortunately, black and minority ethnic and Asian, who I, some of which were just as racist towards white people and towards other people of color. I should mention that racism was rampant um, it, it, throughout prison and it, it was completely indiscriminate. I, I saw just nationalities, ethnicities uh, being racist towards each other. There's no logic to racism. It, then there's no biological foundation for Did it. Did you but, gather a reason why that racism was so rife? I don't know. I don't know. By the end of it, I had, I'd been with white guys that were being racist towards black people. And I'd actually, at first, I questioned them and said, hey, you can't say that. You can't call black people the thing that you're calling them. That's not okay in this day and age. I actually was shunned for that. And I was in a three-man cell where the two of them stopped talking to me for a while until I was moved to a different cell. Right. And I was, till I was moved to the foreign national block, actually. And I was sort of bullied for being just trying to say you can't do that. And then I ended up with a, in a cell with, with two people of uh, different ethnicities that were both black, but from different countries and different ethnicities. And one of them was very anti-white, completely racist um, in many ways. And, and then I met other people from other ethnicities who, uh, two black people, like, I thought you're just, I'm white, you're black. But no, they made the difference between the different kinds of black that they were. And I couldn't, but by the end of it, I couldn't make any sense mm -hmm. of it. It, it is just something that people do. It's, it's inherent in human nature, mm. sadly. What was your experience of, of the prison officers in, in general? Like, I've read various things about it, kind of authority yeah. and, you know, behind closed well, doors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, you better watch yourself because you will get the shit kicked out of you if you're, if you're a bit too mouthy. Now, it, it gets done all the time. There are places in the prison where the, where the cameras are not on a special corner of a stairway or this or that. In my experience, I'm going to give you my experience. I found that actually, if you treat people with respect, if you speak to them with respect, if you don't pressure them, if you, I mean, what, what I try and, you know, I've been working with prisoners now for years. Um, and when I go in and say to them, you're not going to get anything out of prison staff by badgering them and by, by being uh, belligerent or, or, you know, or, or complaining. So, you know, I did, I dumbed it down uh, rather than saying, excuse me, officer. And very quickly, the inmates would just turn or look at each other and go, who's this? And everyone made fun of me. But, and then the officers weren't used to being called officer. Oh, I had to, you know, I had to like tap into my working class roots. And I, and I then called officers, all right, Gov, cheers, Gov, thanks, Gov. And that's the language they understood. It took about six months for them to begin trusting me. And then they realized I wasn't the problem. And I actually, I went above and beyond. I, I was moved to a foreign national wing of Elmley. So I was in, in, in really I'm so grateful for that, where I was the most uh, educated uh, white uh, British, although I wasn't British, um, person there. And I, I, I became an advocate for the for the rights of foreign nationals but i also looked at my environment and thought how can i what can i do to contribute to my environment here because for example 
you would get these inductions. Um, people, when they come into prison, the first night they spend on an induction wing. They don't go straight to where they're going to go. They spend one day on an induction wing where uh, prisoners who work uh, as what are called insiders, you're going to go in, you're going to go into a room, you're going to get shown a PowerPoint presentation, and the prisoners are going to tell you uh, who are who've been there for a long time. But the problem was the foreign nationals coming in, they weren't fluent in English and they certainly weren't uh, literate in English. So they'd be shown mm. a PowerPoint presentation in a foreign language. And I thought to myself, I know what I can do. What if I could coordinate the different languages and get and get people to translate? And then on the first day that the foreign nationals arrive, we do a second induction. Except that this time we've got translators present that can explain everything that needs to be explained. Because, you know, this was a problem for the officers because they didn't speak the, the languages. Um, and I went to an I spoke to an officer and said, what do you think of that idea? And she said, write it up as a proposal and we'll put it to the prison. Hmm. So I wrote up a proposal, passed it on, and then it came back and said, yeah, no problem. So they gave me an insider shirt and I was the insider for the house block contributing. Was that a paid job then? Is that a job that... Oh, yeah, paid. If you can, if you can consider £7.50 a week, <laughs> uh, payment what? for anything, yeah. Is that oh, the, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that the reality of, yeah. of jobs in prison then? Uh, yeah, I mean the the lowest. Uh, yeah, yeah. You, it's a, it's slave labour, really. Um, you know, when I I then got moved from Elmley to HMP Maidstone, which was an entirely entirely for foreign national prisoners. So I actually found in in HMP Maidstone, I found a. Um, you asking me about my experience in prison? I tried to improve my environment. I I stood up. I felt that there were myself and a couple of other people that were you know, maybe a little more educated or maybe had a better grasp of the English language. Um, we stood up for their rights and we, uh, we, I came in contact with a, a charity called User Voice that I ended up working for for five years after I, I was released, um, who were running prison councils in various prisons. And I joined a I looked at the different manifestos because they, they carried out elections within the prison. And I looked at the different manifestos. I found the one was for the Diversity and Equality Party. And I was like, I like their manifesto because in their manifesto, they said, we're not just about improving, you know, uh, uh, you know the, 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 the quality of life for the prisoners. We also would like to encourage better relations between the staff and the prisoners. And I thought, right, well, they've nailed it as far as I'm concerned. Whereas the others were making pie in the sky promises. So I joined this, I became the leader of this party and I would sit with the, gov the prison governors once a month as a representative to try and have the, the rights of the foreign national prison population upheld. Mm. Do you feel like you made an impact there? Ugh. <sighs> uh, to a point, to a point. It was, it was part of my own journey. Mm. So I did the only thing I felt I could do, you know, in those conditions. But I did have an agenda as well, I'll be honest. I wanted to make, I remember setting out and thinking, there could be, there could be a, a good fallout from this. And that could be that, you know, um, I could, you know, annoy the governor so much that he'd actually finally give me my DCAT to get rid of me. And I, and I thought, yeah, that's not going to happen, but who knows? And it's exactly what happened in the end. Wow. And I thought... Wow! And just just they, to remind myself, decap is the open <laughs> prison. The yeah. open prison, the nirvana of prisons, the 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 destination you're trying to get to. Um, and and I had, but I should say as well that by this point, um, you know, well, just before I left Elmley, 
Everything was going so well. I was an insider. I was doing all these inductions. I was friendly with all the officers. I had a key to my cell because I'd been a CCAP prisoner by then. Um, I, everything was going so well. And I had been told because uh, I had had an, uh, um, an interview with my personal officer who had said to me, everything's going very well. Uh, next month you will be recategorized as a DCAT prisoner and you will move over to Stanford Hill, which is just across mm. the way. So I was, I was weeks away from arriving, uh, thinking I'd be going to the DCAT prison. This was in October 2013. And all of a sudden I was taken to uh, Maidstone Prison. And I thought, oh. And when I arrived at the first day, I found out who my uh, personal officer was. And it was during an induction. And I said to her... Um, Hey, so I'm not meant to be here. I mean, I've got a recategorization due in three weeks and I'm meant to be moving to DCAT. And this woman just looked at me, a, a real Kentish racist, I'm going to be honest, because, you know, uh, it was in Kent. And the, the vibe in the foreign national prison wasn't very pro. <laughs> it, was, it was rather xenophobic, right. actually. Can we just clarify that was Kentish, not the other word you might have thought it was. <laughs> oh, yeah, Kentish. Yeah, sorry, sorry. Kentish, um, as in yeah. from Kent. Um, and this woman just looked me up and down and said, you're not going anywhere. You'll go when I say you're going to go. And it, she talked to me like it was my first day in prison. And I thought, oh, no. And, and I realized that all my rights, everything that I'd earned in the 11 months I'd spent at HMP only, everything had been reset. No. And I had no privileges, no nothing, stuck in a cell with somebody where we're sharing a toilet. It wasn't even a cell where you had a private toilet like I'd had previously because after a while, I, I got given my own cell, and I had what's called a single mm. cell, which is where I learned to to meditate, actually. Um, and so um, I had been actually terrorized uh, and made to feel like no one cares about you here. You're, you're here to be deported, mate. You, you know, you need to go back to your country where you came from. Um, and that was the vibe, you know. I remember once moving one, from one cell to the other, and, and, and a... You know, and I was still on my, all right, Gov, you know, on that sort of tip. Um, and that uh, worked fine for me because I not only did I sound English, I sounded like from the southeast as well, which was a good mm. thing because I sounded more like the, the, the Kentish uh, officers. Mm. Um, I remember one guy saying I'd moved from one uh, wing to another and I was moving into a new cell and the toilet seat was broken in my cell. So I went to the a prison officer there and I was like, oh, Gov, um, yeah, but I was holding a toilet seat in my hand. So the toilet seat's broken. Can I can I get a new toilet seat, please? And he was like, oh, well, you know what it is, don't you? It's those, uh, these foreigners, isn't it? I was like, what? <laughs> He's like, you know, they some, some of them, they crouch on the toilet. Didn't you know? And I was like, He's like, I saw it on TV. I saw it on the telly yesterday. I, that's what they do. They're crouching on their toilets. That's why the toilet seat's broken. You know, that's the level of sort of co consciousness that you're dealing wow. with. You, you, I just looked at the guy and thought, oh, my God. <laughs> as far as I know, there were no people crouching on toilets. I mean, you know, where the hell, what the hell are you saying? You're comparing people to animals now. So, but then I got moved to a, an open prison. Oh, so you did. Okay. And I left. I did. So I did. And I spent three and a half months at HMP Ford, uh, in West Sussex, where, quite frankly, I did think I was in a holiday camp in comparison. Also, within two weeks of arriving, a letter was presented to me from from the Home Office saying that uh, they weren't going to deport me. So, from having been in for I, 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 a few weeks in to my sentence, I had been terrorised by the UK border agency. And I, I spent most of that time 
not knowing whether I would be able to be in the UK and with my family. Um, and uh, it, it, it compounded the stress. But at the same time, it gave me opportunity to contribute to my community. Um, and I, and I, was, I was a go-to for, uh, for people who you know, would come and I'd represent their interests. And so I, 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 I had a more positive experience on, on that front. Gosh, wow. What a mad journey. <laughs> what a mad journey. So there's just there's one more yeah. question I want to talk about inside prison, and then I yes. feel like we should move on to to what was life was like for you after yeah. coming out. So I'm just I'm really curious about um, your meditation you talked about um, yeah. and your coping oh, med- yes. like medicine. I'm just gonna sort of say, mm-hmm. um, tell me more about that. What was that journey for you? Right. First of all, um, before I became involved in selling drugs, I had I trained as a clinical hypnotherapist. Mm. Um, and I had my own practice for a number of years. Um, I worked full time as a as a psychological therapist using hypnosis and other techniques, mostly uh, trauma focused stuff, uh, EMDR, um, thought field therapy are used as well. Um, and I had for years looked uh, to to I had my own issues to deal with. Um, I, the person I am today is the is the product of a hell of a lot of therapy. Um, and a lot of self-work, especially since coming out of prison. But I was carrying a lot of trauma. I, I believe I, I would diagnose myself with developmental trauma disorder or complex PTSD, as they used to call it. Um, so I had a lot of issues and I, and I had looked for ways of dealing with it, uh, this stuff. And I'd been to see countless therapists, but I just hadn't been able to engage. I'd never found somebody who could do for me what I was successfully doing for other people. But Meditation was something that had been brought up to me, uh, mentioned to me a few times before I went to prison. People had said, oh, have you tried meditation? You know, that could help. And at one point, uh, I lived in uh, Bethnal Green for a year, um, and there was a big Buddhist center right on my doorstep, and I kept meaning to go. But of course, if you're caught in a, in a cycle of, of drug abuse, um, meditation, you know, is, yeah, I never got round mm-hmm. to it, basically. So when I got to prison, I thought, you know, once I got my single cell, um, I didn't start meditating properly until I had my own space mm. to do that. Uh, it was not possible. Um, but once I got my, my own cell, I thought, well, it's a few months into it. I thought, you know, I, there is a there is a Buddhist chaplain at this prison. He comes once a once a once a week. I thought, well, you know what? I'm going to go and see the uh, the Buddhist chaplain and see, you know, maybe I can learn meditation that way. And once a week for a half day, it, it, it was like leaving the prison. I would go to the prison chapel and I'd speak to a Buddhist chaplain. Most of the time, it was just him and me. Mm. Very few people coming. Part of the reason for that is because they're very strict about what religion you belong to. And if, if you were to keep going to a Buddhist uh, chaplain, you'd have to change your religion to Buddhist. So I just saw it as a formality. I, I changed my religion from nothing to Buddhism. Um, and I got to go and spend half a day a week with a Buddhist chaplain. I'd get to watch videos. He showed me a video on Vipassana meditation uh, in the Goenka tradition, which I ended up, actually, once I got out of prison, I went and did the 10-day Vipassana. Which is a silent retreat for, for those that don't know. It's, basically, it's roughly 100 hours of meditation from 4 a.m. till, I can't remember, 6 or 7 p.m. And you do about 100 hours on, on the 10-day thing. It's so wonderful. I'd recommend it to anyone if you've got the the balls for it, because it's it's not it's not for the for the faint-hearted. Um, but so he showed me uh, a video about that. He and he was from the, a certain Buddhist tradition. The um, what are they called? The Theravadan forest monks. 
Um, and I, I realized that actually uh, Buddhism is something that I really vibed with. Um, I don't consider myself a Buddhist because I don't have a religious practice as such, um, but I, I could relate to a lot of it. And so each time he would also do a meditation and I would sit there and, and you know, it was like I was escaping my reality there for a bit because um, I'd find a lot of a lot of peace. And to go from there to um, actually practicing by myself took a, a, a quite a few weeks. And then one day I was in my prison cell and I, I, um, I tried it by myself. Um, and at first I found it really difficult doing it by myself because my, when you're locked in a prison cell, you're stressed. The, the moment the door locks, um, just imagine someone reaching into your, into your chest and just kind of like, just maybe grabbing your chest and your heart with their hand and just tightening it. That's the physical equivalent of that door mm. closing. Now, at the beginning, I was prescribed antidepressants um, to help me sleep, and I took them, but I, I didn't find that they really had a huge... Uh, and they, yeah, sure, it, I suppose it helped me sleep, but it didn't really do anything for my stress levels. So but the first time I meditated, I found it really difficult. My mind was racing. I, was, it, I found it physically trying, because I, I, I didn't understand at first the concept of meditation. I didn't understand the concept of just letting things be. Um, I was trying to somehow make it happen with my mind and in, in, it ended up being quite stressful at first but I kept going and one day I I finally just it just things fell into place and I was able to just let go I'd love to move on to you know what what life was like as you okay left prison tell me what it was like leaving prison um, and and your life afterwards um, well, it was um, horrendous. <laughs> uh, it was harder. It was like a second sentence um, because I had spent the last three and a half months in an open prison. I, I hadn't had a chance to go home during that time because the, the administrative process took longer than three months. But, but it was, you know, it was a, a shift uh, where, my, where my reality had been for a long time. I just needed to be able to abide this. I needed to be able to... Um, uh, endure it and actually by the end I was leading meditation groups with prisoners and all sorts mm. you know and uh, and you know my I, I I was managing my life and and once I knew that I wasn't being deported I mean that was like a I thought I'd you know died and gone to prison heaven I mean everything was the everything was great in the open prison you know and I felt like you know that things were going to get better but I was also terrified because I was going to have a, a, a criminal record and I didn't and and also you know, I'd spent about eight years in this addiction and then another two years. So I'd, I'd lost a decade of my life to addiction. Um, and my when I first came out, my confidence was absolutely nil. I was full of anxiety. The girl who had been my girlfriend, who I pinned all my hopes on, you know, that that, that we were gonna, I was going to get out and she was going to wait for me and all that. She didn't wait for me. She... <laughs> She ended up mm. moving on and uh, I was kind of left to myself. I had no money, whereas I had had ridiculous amounts of money previously with so much money, I didn't know what to do with it. You know, I, I couldn't just walk into a job. I hadn't, I'd, I'd been off grid for years. Um, I was terrified and I ended up having to live at my mum's in her tiny little spare room up north where I'm not actually from, where she's ended up going to live where my sister lives near Manchester. Um, and uh, I, I, I I, I was totally depressed. I, I tried to claim benefits, but I was then, I, I was faced with this hostile environment, as it's been called, um, this policy of, 
of of uh, 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 you know of uh, how shall I say? I, I was made to feel like a second grade citizen by by the uh, by the Department of Work and Pensions because I had no job, no money. I didn't know what to do. I I had to claim benefits, you know, and I was given job seekers allowance but i was told you're only going to get that for 12 weeks because you're you're not british you know and i was like what's going on um imagine being a foreign um and being um a a convicted Mm. criminal i was when i would arrive at the job center they'd say oh it's you okay and then a guard would uh, a security officer would come straight to me and i'd be ushered up to an upstairs office specially for people wow. like me. I wasn't allowed to be with the rest of the population downstairs. I was always taken upstairs and spoken to like this 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 person wasn't had no compassion, nothing. They were just you know, they were just telling me, you can't have this kind of we're taking away your benefits, you know, you're foreign, you're this, you're that. You know, I, I was spoken to in a tone that was so disparaging that at one point I, I got a bit upset and I was like, you can't do this, you don't talk to me this way. I've lived here for years. I you know, I, all my family here. I'm I've just got a different passport, you know, and I'd have a security officer come, come, you know, sh- quickly come over and look and, and look at me like he was about to like attack me or something. Um, in the end, I had to go to my local um, member of parliament, who was a, a, a Labour uh, person, and I went and and directly and said, uh, "You need to intervene. Well, I don't know what's going on here, but I'm being treated very badly." And my local MP up there contacted the local, you know. Department of Work and Pensions, and it was all sorted mm. out, you know. But they were trying to, you know. Then I was told because you're living at your mother's, we're going to because my mother is, and like I said, working class doesn't have a lot of money, is on benefits herself. They were going to start docking her benefits because I was living what? in the house. So, and I was like, what? And there, there was some piece of legislation somewhere that said that if you had somebody living with you then they should be contributing. And uh, so they were going to start taking, I think it was like a quarter of her benefits away. And I was like, what? I'm like, well, where am I going to find a job? I'm a politics graduate turned drug dealer with no prospects. And, you know, it wasn't easy to find work. I was going to this job center completely depressed and being told, oh, you can you can work in a warehouse if you want, but, you know, you've got to lift heavy boxes and i got a really bad back. I was like, no, I can't do that, actually. So I was stuck wondering... You know, and at one time I'd been a successful psychological therapist and I was in this terrible state and uh, my mother said, you're going to have to leave because I can't, we can't, this can't keep going. And I was totally depressed. Again, on antidepressants, I was sofa surfing at different friends, um, which was very awkward. Um, and I ended up actually moving back to London where I felt there was more opportunities for me. And I ended up sleeping uh, on... A hard floor with no bed uh, for months. Wow, you essentially did fall into homelessness after you came out of prison, yeah. I did. I was homeless for, a, I was on someone else's yeah. floor. I then graduated to, I, well, I found a mattress in the street because um, I, was, I was living in North London. When we arrived there, the flat was, there was nothing in the flat. There weren't even any floorboards. There was just this sort of dust everywhere and you know and this place was being done up and it was you know I was being allowed to stay there for free out of the goodness of someone's heart and the first thing I did was vacuum and tidy the place up but there was no furniture so we we, we found all our furniture mm-hmm. in the street um, and uh, bits, things left out chairs bits this that my friend's brother was a, an estate agent and sometimes flats would get emptied and mm-hmm. you'd say oh there's a bed in that flat do you want it you know and we ended up inheriting these hand-me-downs and stuff and, and finding stuff in the street. And at one point, I, we found a couple of mattresses. 
I remember the first night that I slept on a mattress I found in the street, which was, I just want to clarify, was in a really good state. Um, I just remember going on that mattress with my sleeping bag and going, oh, I've graduated to a mattress instead of a hard floor. I mean, it, it was desperate. I was absolutely mm. desperate. And, you know, and of course they speak of the revolving door. There isn't, you know, how do you get a job with a criminal record? I, if I applied for a job as, as, at McDonald's, you know, um, I'd have to tick the box saying that I had an unspent conviction. My conviction won't be spent until 2023. Really? And my application's going in the bin. So what did you do? What happened? Right. So here's what I did, because uh, I'm in a much better place now. Um, I remembered the charity that I had been involved with whilst at HMP Maidstone was called User Voice. And they employed, they had a model, which I thought was fantastic. They employed ex-offenders to uh, work within the prison system and within the, the, the general uh community, the criminal justice system. So they were working with people uh, outside in, and they were organizing these councils to, to promote active citizenship. And I went and found User Voice and said, uh, I want to work for you guys. But of course, you know, you, you don't just give people jobs. So I ended up volunteering for about eight months. Um, so I, I was on uh, job. So I lived off Job Seekers Allowance, which was 74 pounds a week. So I was surviving on 74 pounds a week. Um, but what I, so I volunteered and part of that volunteering meant that I would be given a five pound lunch stipend because I was still a service user, as they call them, because I was still in the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. So that five pounds a, a day, that they, I went there for about three or four days a week and that five pounds a day I wouldn't spend on lunch. I would I had to give them a receipt for food, but I would go to Tesco and buy enough food for two or three meals, uh, like rice and this and that. And then I'd, all I had to do was give them a receipt from Tesco for food. You know, so I sort of managed for those eight months and... I went for a job interview with them uh, at one time to be a research assistant, um, and I, I, I failed miserably. I, I got to the, the, the interview and I, I, I went to pieces. I, I, I was nervous, I didn't know what to say. Mm. I failed the interview, um, and I thought, this is it. I, if these guys who employ ex-offenders won't help, I do not know what I'm going to do, because I can't, <sighs> right. Yeah, I've got to work uh, in some way, uh, you know, I, I've got to work and do something that I'm going to be good at and I'm going to enjoy to a, to a point. You know, I can't just work at McDonald's, for God's sake. You know, I, I know that might sound, maybe I'm sounding privileged in saying that, but, you know, I was a, I was a politics graduate and, a, and, and a, I felt an accomplished psychological therapist at one point. I can't just work at McDonald's. I've got to do something meaningful. And I failed the interview and I thought to myself, I know this is because I just tanked the interview. I know I can do this. I went to the head of research and said to her, look, I know I tanked the interview. I know I did badly, but I want to prove to you that I can do this job. Will you let me volunteer in the research team? Um, and she said, okay, you can come. And, and, and then I would go each day and I started working in the, the, um, the main office uh, at User Voice there in, uh, in Vauxhall, uh, the head office. And I, I, to lots of uh, support research. I had an idea of how research worked and so I was able to support them. And three months into it, they were so happy with my work that I was offered the choice of one of three jobs. Mm. And then I became employed. As of August 2015, I became employed. Um, and at that point, you know, I, I, I got an actual salary each month and I began to be able to make ends meet. And there my life changed uh, because finally, you know, I, had a, I didn't have much money, but I had a job. Mm. And I worked for User Voice then for five years in lots of different capacities, mostly doing um, 
less in, of the engagement work and more of the administrative and uh, I was a coordinator on various projects and uh, project lead a couple of times as well. So uh, in those five years, I, I gained, I regained a lot of confidence because I had a whole decade to catch up on. And I, I attended, uh, I started seeing a therapist uh, and I've had various kinds of, of uh, psychological therapies myself. The, the one I think that has had the most impact is, is internal family systems, which is a type of trauma work. Um, I'm actually a, a completely different person now than I was certainly during the, uh, my years of addiction and also since uh, returning, since being released from prison, it's been a, it's been a journey. Mm-hmm. Um, and today, uh, in the end, I left user voice. Um, I was made redundant when they lost the contract and I accepted the redundancy and I have gone on to become a consultant, um, an engagement specialist and a research, a researcher and a consultant in, in the criminal justice system. So I've been working in and out of prisons now for, for a number of years, mm. uh, sometimes in the community, mostly in prisons for the last uh, three years now. Sadly, not since COVID, uh, everything's done remotely. Um, wow. But I work f- with a small collective of researchers and engagers and we, I engage with people who think that I'm just a well-meaning researcher like yourself, for example. But when I tell them, you know what, I spent two years behind the door um, for a drug offence, uh, a, a lot of them will go, oh, you've been to prison. Wow, you don't sound like you're the type of person. No, you know, I've been to prison, mate. I've been in the system. I know exactly what, you know, what it's like coming out of prison. I know what it's like being in the... And I can talk the language and all of a sudden the barriers, you know, are down. And most of the time you can't stop people talking because they can't believe that here they, is their chance to share. A bit like me now, actually, mm. <laughs> uh, you know, a chance to share something that, you know, uh, of, of my own experience, of their own experience. And it makes a huge difference um, as to whether somebody has um, had walked in their shoes. The, the, the lived experience component is is very important. And uh the you know a lot of these government bodies and organizations recognize that that there is a value placed on lived genuine lived experience so this is the niche that i found myself um and that's that's the work that i'm doing and it's thankfully it's paying the bills i am and i've recently started seeing clients again doing the odd bit of psychological therapy work which i'm really excited about because i'd lost the confidence to do that and just of late i've been uh, studying a lot you know just re-educating myself again a lot around trauma and yeah. i've started seeing a, a couple of clients here and there and i'm really pleased with that work and that's that's the way it's looking like i'm going to be moving forward and more more therapy work that's brilliant. <clears throat> that's brilliant oh my goodness what an incredible story you have and journey i i just love that you yeah have, have had such a huge uh, you know, turn around and you've experienced the pain of that system and then you've made the proactive and, and honourable decision to to go about changing that and improving that, you know, inside and and um, afterwards. And I think, mm. God, this conversation has just exposed so many injustices and inconsistencies um, and immoralities um within the system that i think so many of us um you know as i said earlier sort of brush under the rug um i think it, that attitude of sort of out of sight out of mind you know i think our 
Yep. Prisoners are some of the most forgotten people in our society, second to homeless, um, you know, who yep. are, I'm sure a huge percentage of are ex-criminals. Um, I'm just, I'm so grateful to have, have had this conversation with you. Um, it's been so enlightening for Thank me and I, I, and I hope for so many others. I've, I've never been interviewed before on a, on, a, on a podcast. Well, you did great. Yeah, you did amazing. Um, all right, such a pleasure speaking with you. Um, yep, likewise. Well, keep up the good work then, that's all I can say. Sounds like you're doing good, good bits of work. Thank you. Way. Thank you. I really appreciate that. All right, take care then. Yeah, you too. Take yeah, care. Bye. 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 Wow, what a conversation that was. Um, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. And... Um, yeah, I really hope that left you with with a, a a huge insight into what it really means to be in a UK prison, um, what it is to be a, a UK national in a in a prison, um, some of the injustices um, that that happened there, and this incredible journey that our stranger had had been on. Um, thank you so much for listening. Um, it's been it's been an honor really to have this kind of conversation and I'm, I'm so excited for, for our next one. Um, I must thank our incredible team of, of dedicated volunteers. Um, we have Alex, our audio editor. We have Vicky, our assistant editor. We have Hannah, our producer. We have Emma, our composer. And we have Andia, our graphic designer. Um, you can find out more information um, about Talk to Strangers on our Instagram. Please leave us a review if you've enjoyed this episode. Do recommend it to your friends. That's how we're spreading right now. Um, and yeah, tune in next month for, for uh, another anonymous conversation with a extraordinary stranger. This podcast was brought to you by gigfunding.org. Gig Funding is a online marketplace where you can hire skills that you need and all of the money goes to a charity you choose. Go to gigfunding.org to find out how you can make an impact or meet neighbours through giving by doing. I've been Pasco and remember, don't be a stranger.